Hi, everybody. I'm Josh Constein, and welcome to Press Club, where we talk to the big names in tech about the biggest ideas. Today, we're talking about the future of identity and communication in the crypto era. With crypto wallets holding NFTs, potentially replacing your Instagram profile as the way you represent yourself online, with new communication protocols allowing people to move off of email and SMS messaging and onto wallet-to-wallet -wallet, wallet communication, how are we gonna redefine ourselves? What does it mean to own something in the crypto era? What does it mean to be proud of something or to have an experience? And so we're gonna be talking with some incredible names today about what their big ideas for the future of cryptocurrency, blockchain, identity, and communication are. So thank you so much for joining us. I'm Josh Constein, your host from SignalFire, former editor-at-large from TechCrunch, and we got our incredible panel all set up. So I want to just kick it around the room and just give me like your galaxy brain thought about where identity is going in the crypto era. That could be about profile picture NFTs, the how communication is going to work, how we define ourselves. I'm going to kick it off with MG. Uh, Matt Galligan is the co-founder of XMTP, a new protocol for crypto wallet-to-wallet -wallet messaging that just raised $20 million. Matt, why don't you kick us off? What do you think is going to happen? Yeah, thanks, Josh. Um, thanks for pulling this together. So so I think the biggest shift, in my opinion, uh, when, it, when we add crypto into the mix, especially when what we're being identified by are these addresses, right, that to most to just look, up, look like a, a bunch of letters that are completely random, there they are. Well, what's happening when we buy things online, uh, when we buy NFTs, when we interact with other people through those NFTs, when we interact with DAOs, with all kinds of the different things that are in crypto, is you're building a history. Um, and this history is getting rooted uh, on the Ethereum blockchain. And over time, as you build up that history, other people can look uh, and see the kinds of things that you've done, the kinds of uh, NFTs you've collected, the stuff that you've you've minted, and as we continue to use these these identities uh, by way of these wallets and these addresses in other experiences, we'll be able to build up reputations uh, that are based on that activity. And what's really different is because everything is public, I can go out and look at the entire blockchain and look for individuals that might have done certain kinds of activities. And I don't need to know anything more about them other than just the things that they have done. Um, and when solutions like ours come to the table where you'll be able to message these individuals, uh, it, it really turns on its head this idea of why we are interacting with people. Because today, a lot of times it's because of somebody's identity that we something we already know about them, their name, their their schools, some sort of other uh, kind of affiliation, their their status. Where in this you know next phase uh, after uh, we start to migrate to some of these on chain identities, it will really be more about the activity uh, that somebody is engaging in online rather than the identity that they already put out there. That's brilliant that instead of sort of being defined by just what we own in the, the real world, that we have this immutable record of what we've done and what we're part of in the crypto world. And I think that, you know, if we're moving from, uh, you know, physical possessions to digital possessions, we're moving from just experiences to being members of governance communities. It seems like that's how people are going to define themselves. Shlomo, I want you to jump in. Shlomo here shattered a, a urinal uh, with a giant sledgehammer to create the first physically fractionalized NFT that he's been auctioning over the last few days, uh, kind of an, an ode to Marcel Duchamp's uh, original fountain. And it, you know, it's just really caught fire because I think it's really exposed, you know, what is it that makes uh, art art? How do we define ourselves as artists? Uh, and how do we define ourselves as collectors? What does it mean to own a piece of art? Does that mean you're part of a community? Does it just mean you had the money at the time? Uh, or does it mean you believe in the future of something? So Shalom, maybe you could give us your, your galaxy brain thoughts on identity in this era. Because I know that you've had some interesting commentary on like, you know, Putting a cute, like you know, bit, uh, pixelated portrait as your profile picture isn't the f necessarily the future. Well, Josh, honestly, I'd, I'd love to give you a great answer to that question, but honestly, I, I mean, I'm so full of adrenaline, I'm not even sure I remember what you just asked. I, I, my, my, this is like the craziest moment of my life that I'm sharing with you guys right now on stage. I think that uh, the intention behind, uh, you know, my like 
burgeoning art career was always like I, I joined the NFT space and I looked around at the type of art that was being made um, and I just didn't see what I wanted you know to to consume um, with my eyeballs I mean there's, there's lots of amazing art out there don't get me wrong but there's just a very specific um, sort of vein of, of weirdness and conceptualness and like in a, a very na- like digitally native uh, sense that I uh, wasn't really seeing. So, like for example, the last piece that I auctioned before this urinal thing was um, an image of a fractal, and within this PNG, I embedded like a file structure that can that contained like um, a bunch of other. Uh, uh, it's hard to explain, but basically, there was a file structure containing um, 730 copies of the image itself, sort of mirroring the fractal that um, was displayed in the image. So basically, the the image was a map of itself. Um, and that was really cool, and 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 it sold. Um, but then, what what I think is so unique about the NFT space is, and this is just one random example of a million things that are happening all at once. Um, the guy who bought it now wants to fractionalize it um, into 730 non fungible pieces, each one coordinating to a node on the fractal. Um, so, anyways, that probably is very abstract explanation since you guys haven't seen it probably. Um, but but I guess the point is that it's it's a much more um, collaborative form of like patronage i guess you could say like a a lot of the people who buy my art i'm now collaborating with on on what to do with the art um and i think that's really unique so i I tweeted um yesterday um sort of a rambling thread about how you know conceptual artists in the traditional world and by that i mean like the stodgy you know gallery world you know buttoned up like they're not interfacing with their fans on a day-to-day basis right like they, they interface with their fans through interviews newspaper right like they're on tv or whatever um but they're not you know talking to the people who appreciate their art they're aloof they're separated um and for me like the the art making process is inherently you know um like a, a community thing right like i i respond to everyone on twitter my dms are open i i the amount of people that I've like talked to today is just insane, right? And and I think you also see with with people who at least choose to engage with their with the, their art appreciators or fans like me, I, I, you you end up becoming like actually friends with them, right? Like people who people who started liking my art like a month ago, I now consider actual friends. I think it's just a, a fundamentally different way of um, consuming art but also creating art. And just to, I know I'm rambling. So just to end off that thought, I think, um, I think that's to me, what's so special about like the NFT landscape is not even necessarily tech. It's the fact that it allowed, uh, artists like me to be commercially successful while making art for people like ourselves and not catering to some, uh, you know, gallery owner, um, who occupies a completely different world and has completely different, you know, aesthetic sensibilities and background than us. I love that idea that the the real dividing point between these concepts of a creator and you know, maybe an old world artist is that you know the art artist was more of a one way relationship. It was a broadcast. It said, "Here's what I think. You can think whatever you want of it." But in this modern era, it's much more two way. You actually have a dialogue going on between the creator and their collectors or their fans. And I also hear what you were saying is kind of a sign that we're moving towards this era where. I feel like NFTs are almost like your digital clothing, like the way that we used to display our, uh, you know, our affinity or our aesthetic for certain things or our allegiance to certain things was through our clothing, through our style, you know, whether you were more absurd or more conservative, whether you represented certain brands or certain bands or whatever it was that you were showing that out in the world, but we don't wear clothes as our, you know, our little, you know, minds floating around the internet. And instead collecting something like an NFT can be that outward, uh, outworldly signal uh, of what you care about and what you align with. And you're actually putting your skin in the game. You're putting real money behind it oftentimes. Uh, Ronan, I think I cut you off. What's up? Oh, yeah. I just wanted to kind of synthesize what Shlomo was saying with a little bit of what Matt was saying. Uh, if 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 I grok your point correctly, Shlomo, like any art that is sufficiently abstract, the sale of it becomes a piece of performance art in effect. And therefore the collector's aren't just collecting the art when the art is abstract enough, the sale of it is performance art. And therefore the collectors are participants in that performance to where their collecting of it is actually a form of collaboration. And to Matt's point, then their history of interacting with the work on chain 
ranging from buying it to even just bidding on it becomes this record of who they have collaborated with on which concepts they have affinity for and which abstractions interest them, such as this one asking what is and isn't art, et cetera. And then as you're kind of pointing out, Shlomo, that's just the start. And then that ends up growing into more collaborations with the collectors. That's why we bring Ronan into these things, the the great distiller. <laughs> uh, Maria, I want to bring you in on this. You're an incredible investor at Sound Ventures, one of the investors in uh, Matt here's new company, XMTP. Uh, maybe you could tell us your vision of, of what identity means uh, and how communication is going to work in this new era. By the way, it's, it's Maria. Oh, I'm uh, so sorry about that, every, Maria. No, no worries. Everyone always gets it wrong. Um, so I, I think it's a lot of what was already said. And then I want to take it a step further because I think there's a way that crypto actually enables you to monetize your identity, which is really fascinating. So I'm one of the co-founders of the company behind Stoner Cats. The whole thesis behind it is can you uh, decentralize content creation and content distribution uh, and like essentially, you know, screw over the the studios who control the content that's getting created and actually like let the community decide what gets made. Um, and there's a world where these, NF- these, these NFTs access, act as act, access tokens to watch the content. And you can see a world where when, once people start collecting a bunch of different NFTs for all the content that they watch, whether it's Stoner Cats, Shit's Creek, Friends, Seinfeld, whatever it is, they can actually curate their own box office, essentially, of content that then can, then can be unlocked by other people. So you can sell tickets to it. You can rent screenings for it. And so your identity almost become replaces uh, traditional traditional models or channels that exist for content distribution. So you can see a world where instead of, you know, streaming Netflix or watching CNN, you can actually watch the Mario box office. And there's something really interesting about your curation and your taste uh, becoming a part of who you are and actually also being able to generate income off of it. Yeah, I mean, we, we used to kind of define ourselves by like our DVD collections. Now you could actually run your own movie theater with the DVDs you collect and use that curation as like a symbol of who you really are. And I think that's often a really incredible way to get to know somebody is just seeing what they curate, asking them what their favorite thing is in a bunch of different mediums. And that will tell you a lot about who they really are on the inside. Uh, Cooper, what's your, what's your big take? What's your galaxy brain thought on, on identity and what that means in the future of uh, crypto? Yeah, I mean, I think it's the way in which we spend our time online. You know, for a long time, we've all played video games like RuneScape. You know, I was a big player of Fortnite back in the day. But when you accrued social assets in those games, there's not really a way to translate those to financial value. And now with what we see with crypto is having NFTs, you know, your digital inventory becomes something that's transferable cross-world and cross-platform. And it's also something that's portable across different marketplaces. And so I think it's nothing too different from what we see today from, uh, you know, games like World of Warcraft, where you're going and playing with your friends, you guys are earning... IRL loot that you can go and collect and having these incredible experiences. But the biggest difference now is that you can live on the back of those experiences. You know, it's not about having to take, you know, leisure time and play these games to blow off some steam. I think that there's a very real career path to be had from building a digital identity. And what you're seeing now is that your on-chain activity becomes a source of credit, essentially, where you're earning airdrops, you're earning in-game assets, you're earning NFTs, and you're sort of building this network for yourself that, you know, basically acts as your digital resume. And I think as we move forward here and people are building in this world, you're going to start to notice that the most important things you can be doing are on-chain actions. And the more those actions you take, the larger you're going to be able to identify and affiliate yourself with this growing community of people. And Cooper is an incredible crypto. He's a strategist with Audius, which is this uh, blockchain-based music streaming service. Also just a great visionary and part of a bunch of awesome DAOs, uh, really forward thinker in in this space. Yeah, to me, this has just been blowing my mind because for so long I was dead set on this concept that we were moving from the material to the experiential culture that we used to have, uh, you know, we used to have all these possessions that we defined ourselves by our record collections, our photo albums, but they all got digitized. And I think there's been an awakening of consciousness, you know, in the mainstream, things like yoga and wellness have really driven this where people realize that they don't end up on their deathbed thinking of all those things I could have owned. It's like all the things I could have done. And now we have digital devices to capture experiences, uh, networks to share those experiences. Experiences. And yet all of a sudden, I feel like this is all getting flipped on its head with the idea that, you know, by owning these things, that is the, ex- like purchasing the thing is part of the experience, collecting it and curating it is its own experience. Uh, and 
long term that like, you know, it seems like we're going back to this world of like you're kind of defined by the things you bought or collected, uh, which I was really surprised by. So what do you guys think about this experiential culture concept? You know, Shlomo, maybe like, you know, you, you actually let people come and participate in the shattering of the urinal that you've turned into this art piece. You know, that was kind of like, I think even more exclusive than the people who own the shards are the people who actually got to be there when it got shattered. And so maybe you could talk about that concept of like how experience and possession intermix here. Yeah, I wasn't necessarily uh, thinking about that, but I, th- I think you're 100% right. I, I was more inspired by um, Eve Klein and, and his um, ideas on ritual and incorporating ritual into his art. And also like, it, you know, giving giving power to the to the you know giving power to to his audience um so he would he would have people for example he had um he would paint uh, maybe this is an appropriate example for the clubhouse i'll dm you about it but anyway (laughs) (laughs) i mean this is a spicy chat you can say whatever you want here to be real he would have he would paint nude women in his uh patented shade of blue and then he would direct them exactly like limb by limb how to move along a canvas basically. Um, and while that's not really my cup of tea, I, I was very interested in like, uh, making a piece of art that is actually made by other people and I'm sort of just, um, conducting it. Right. And, and I've also called this art like IRL generative, uh, which is sort of a play on, on words uh, uh, about, um, you know, this trend of generative art in crypto. Um, so, you know, sort of the, the random entropy, um, inherent in like, who was there, exactly how the urinal is placed. Like that's what led to the exact way that the urinal is shattered. Anyways, um, that's a long way to say, yeah, I think the experience um, is very important, but this is like a very specific instance where there was actually a physical experience involved. So that's not really like the usual NFT. Um, that's not really the, the way it usually goes. But I, I think right now, for example, there's there's an experience, right, with, with, um, with this project. There are a lot of people who, um, who can't necessarily afford uh, the prices that these urinal shards, as crazy as it sounds, are going for? Um, but they're 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 along for the ride, right? Because it says something about them. They're part of some sort of in group, not in an exclusionary sense. They just understand it and um, and are in on on the joke, so to speak. Um, and so you know, it's sort of like an event on Twitter, at least in our little corner of Twitter. Um, and my Twitter's like been blowing up, and I, I think people are people are having fun with it, right? Like this is, this is an event that's solely taking place on Twitter, on, you know, tele- Telegram, like it's, it's taking place on people's phones, but there's still, an, I think, a, a, like a palpable excitement. Um, people are watching the bids. Like that's, this is, a, this is a, this is a pastime for some people. And maybe it's hard to understand um, from the vantage point of someone who hasn't like sat there and watched like bids come in for, you know, some guy who just started making art a couple months ago, but like, you know, to, to get to like be along for the ride, you know, when someone's entire life is being changed. Like, I mean, you guys are, you guys are here while my girlfriend is like tracking the bids on my auction. Like I'm making more money in one night than like several years of my shitty corporate job that I just quit. So like, this is, you know, this is like, this is real life, you know, and people are, are, are experiencing it with me and I'm being vulnerable and and real about it. And it's like, you know, I, I think that's powerful, and that and that's why I think. I think it know, just I, I, closed, by the way, your auction. Cool. <laughs> I guess I'll have to go check my computer. <laughs> Congrats to that, man. Yeah, I mean, it, it, thank you. It, it seems like you know, over time we're going to be starting to remember that the things that we remember, like the cultural events, right. those have a huge influence on the value of something. Because it's like if it's something that is a point in time that people remember, not just that something that you know was this blip. I, I think that that really matters to people. Like the fact that they right. they sat like on pins and needles, wondering if they would get outbid on something, uh, or like watching, feeling just feeling the like insanity or the you know the zeitgeist of it. It's like almost like when you feel like a when the home team wins in a city, like wins the championship, and there's just like this buzz throughout the city it's like people remember that experience and so you know the memorabilia related to that game ends up becoming worth more i think um yeah, uh, but one of the things that I think is most fascinating about this is is the communication layer and i want to bring matt back into it on that you know when 
originally, I felt like when we were communicating online, it was like, oh, we communicate via email because that was kind of the iconic uh, venue of communication for the internet. But I felt like largely as our identities increasingly moved towards things like Twitter and social networks, it was there that we wanted to do our messaging. And now it feels like we're on the cusp of another shift where as people start to spend more of their time thinking about using, displaying their crypto wallets, that communication seems likely to move there too. Because it's like, if that's how you define your identity, you want the communication tied to that identity. So Matt, maybe you could just talk about your big vision for XMTP and what that means for allowing this concept of like your identity to truly live in the blockchain and not be this sort of shunt off the side of your identity where you communicate in these old school mediums. Yeah, I'd be happy to. And, you know, I have to call out XMTP, you know, quite obviously has its its name, its history and its name in SMTP, the, the mail protocol. And at this point, SMTP is now 40 years old, uh, had its four-year anniversary this year. And that as a protocol started out with the simple idea that you could spin up a mail server, uh, you could have this mail software, this protocol, and that you could communicate to anybody else in the world so long as they were using the same protocol. There were no um, direct intermediaries. It was just this very open protocol. And we still use it today. I mean, it's responsible for, you know, an unbelievable amount of economic activity, um, just about anything in the world is probably happening via email still. But along the way, we found more efficient ways of communicating, whether that was, you know, Twitter or Slack or text messages or all these things. Um, and, you know, there were attempts at uh, open protocols that did pretty well for a long time. Uh, that was IRC and another one similar to our name, XMPP, which was Google Talk. Um, but for the sake of simplicity and the ease, they kind of just all uh, went super centralized again. So now you have, you know, Telegram and Signal and Facebook Messenger and your Instagram DMs. And I can DM someone here inside of Clubhouse. You have this massive uh, split of all these different tools and services could be used to just move messages around. And what's frustrating about that you know, is just speaking to the technology is that if I say, you know, Josh, I just sent you a message. I now have to define which platform I sent you that message on. And I just find that to be incredibly annoying. And it's, it's just really problematic. I mean, if anyone has dealt with this, like having the same, like talking with the same person on three different mediums simultaneously, or like switching mediums to escape like your old message history, like, oh God, it got such, we went to such an awkward place or there was like a question I never answered. So I just stopped responding on Facebook Messenger and moved to SMS. It's just like, it's all such a mess right now. And I'm sure Shlomo, you're probably dealing with like every single messaging platform in your life just exploding simultaneously. Yeah, well, actually, I don't know if you've been following, um, if, if anyone checks out my Twitter profile, and it might look like a mess, but I actually, like, over the past week developed, I, I mean, because if, if you've been following this project, like, there's been a lot of information that, it's an information problem, right? Like, I need people to know what links to click, um, what's going where, It's it's been really, like, a massive information coordination problem, so I've developed, like, the strategy of, like, really intense threading, I don't know if anyone follows, like, VisaCon, V, or some of those other people who are, like, Twitter threading uh, savants. Um, and then I've also been, I, I, I've started using these Telegram channels um, and they're pinned at the top of my Telegram and they're just me broadcasting, right? So that's like opt-in, like basically like instead of you turning on Twitter notifications and you get every half-formed thought that I tweet, you can almost sort of turn on notifications for a specific train of thought. So I have a very specific uh, Telegram for my um, found project and I'll just drop pretty much any like relevant tweet that contains necessary information. And there you have a feed um, basically just getting streamed from my Twitter of all the information that you need uh, to see. That is to say, it sounds like a mess and probably could use some improvements. So Matt, sorry, go back into your, your spiel. It's a mess because of how Twitter is organized. And I think I've sort of solved it to some extent, is what I'm saying. Shlomo, with, with your project, it's like you have done you know an incredible amount of work to try and coordinate everything and have put a lot of thought into that. And have kind of developed your audience through that manner. And I think that, uh, that largely that that's going to benefit you. But in a lot of ways, there's, you know, there's a miscommunication problem within this space and where you kind of separate the old from the new is that like, we take for granted that whenever we sign up for services that we're using our email address as our identifier or our phone number. And those things are both, you know, unique, they're unique to us. And we have 
uh, an inbox there, but that's just it. They're both an identifier and a means to get in touch. Uh, it's an inbox. The, the interesting thing about crypto wallets is they're definitely identifiers. Um, there's a unique set of characters that are uh, specific to only my wallet. And that wallet can contain value. It can contain tokens. It can contain NFTs. Um, but, but so far, there hasn't really been a reliable way of being able to send messages among wallets. And that's where you know, we're trying to sort of solve this problem. And where it gets interesting is, you know, let's say that uh, you have an artist, say, like people, and he can now go direct with his fans. Um, or even let's just take, let's take Mario's project, SonarCat. Um, you know, perfect example where the whole purpose of the project was to go direct to fans. The content itself is only viewable if you own the NFT to be able to uh, gain access to that, which is super cool. It's a great idea and it's a great way to to raise a lot of funds to to develop that project. But now Maria can go out to the blockchain and identify each and every wallet that has those assets. Unlike, you know, you can't just uh, wave a magic wand and know everyone whose household has a particular, you know, piece of art hanging on the wall or anything. It doesn't, it's not possible. But in this world it is. And with that information, Maria can build the, you know, the communication channel can can get directly in touch with the fans that uh, that they uh, that they've amassed, and it's all available in that sort of public blockchain. Now, there's a whole lot to, you know, handle around filtering and spam prevention and all those things, and so we can get into that later. But what we're trying to do is get to this point where an, a message can be sent to an address on a open protocol and when i got to talking about all the like telegram and signal and all those kinds of things that's because each one of those is its own walled garden and what we're trying to do here is to produce a common uh protocol not unlike the email protocol on a decentralized network that allows the applications to have a common and shared back end so now imagine all of those messaging apps that you're using, they just exist because they built some great front end. But now all of the messages are actually still, the back end is all shared. It's a shared state, which is kind of what we're seeing with Ethereum and all the amazing stuff happening, um, you know, and building applications on top of that. We're just going to bring the messaging layer to that world. Yeah, the way that I think about it, it's like, you know, the beauty of crypto and what crypto has enabled is that your wallet goes with you no matter what platform you're on. Actually, it's like really funny. So like a few months ago, when Mila is one of the co-founders of Stoner Cats 2, and when she was buying her first NFTs, she bought one on OpenSea, and then she also bought one on Super Rare. And she was like, the first question that she asked me was like, well, how do I transfer it to the wallet, to like my same wallet? And she like didn't understand the concept initially of like, no, 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 your wallet stays the same no matter what website that you're on and you can just transpose it and move it from platform to platform. And so that's going to be one of the really interesting things that happens with XMTP that like you don't need multiple different email addresses or phone numbers or usernames across all these different platforms. It's all just standardized and your wallet becomes your identity layer and that can power all of the different ways that you know platforms communicate with you or how you interact with them. Um, and so that's a kind of, I think, the biggest aha moment for me on on XMTP. I always thought that it was so crazy that when you gave out your phone number or your email address, you cannot take that back. That like you, that person, like yes, you could maybe block a, a address that they send to you from, but they can always just change to a different address, and you can never truly escape them unless you literally just like get rid of that phone number or email address entirely. It's actually one of the things, smartest things that I thought Facebook actually did in the last maybe five years or so was really understanding that like messaging and messenger needed much better permissions, and that you know moving away from phone numbers and towards some kind of profile where at least you have the ability to like block somebody kind of more entirely or holistically really mattered uh, for you to be able to like preserve your identity and not have to like constantly switch your phone number uh, or, or anything like that because otherwise you're just going to end up with like this endless wall of spam. Um, but yeah, the, I, I feel like this is the the basis of like this underlayering messaging layer for the metaverse is if you can finally uh, unify all of the backends of this by building some truly like underlying profile, then you know we can keep our messaging with us. And I think how we talk and who we talk to is 
such a huge part of that identity. Yeah, that's exactly right. We are trying to build that core unifying layer. And by the way, also try to address some of the problems that you just brought up, because one of the biggest challenges that we have in the existing kind of space is there's no economic disincentive to spam people, to harm people. And one of the things that we're paying attention to from a sort of core principles standpoint is that, you know, <laughs> or I'll, I'll, I'll give an example of the United States Postal Service. It cost me 50 cents to send you a letter, Josh, but it costs me less than that if I want to spam you. <laughs> Bulk mail costs less than trying to send an authentic kind of one of a kind message. And we want to flip that in this case where, you know, there are, uh, there's going to be economic incentives to, you know, send uh, real messages between real people. It's going to uh, be a way for us to prevent spam at large because it would be, you know, incredibly too costly to be able to send those types of messages. Um, and then that way we can focus on making the experience, you know, cheap, if not free for almost everybody, uh, save for the ones that want to do the bad acting. And the benefit that we get from that is one shared inbox that every single app that is building on this you know, metaverse will be able to use. And it travels with you no matter what always attached to your to your wallet. I love the idea of like open rates mattering that you know if you if you keep on sending things that nobody reads like the cost of sending messages goes up whereas if you send something and people consistently opening it it can stay free so you can kind of titrate the ability to to you know pollute the network uh, while making sure to uh, that it always remains accessible. Um, Ronan I know that I cut you off for a second what, what were you thinking? Oh no there was just a thing that you were kind of asking about earlier that I think relates to this regarding the like the communication aspect of being a collector on it in the communication. I don't want to diverge it, but a, a way to think about this that I think can be helpful is if you look at anything where people gain social capital or what you may think of as bragging rights, um, we now have mechanisms to convert those into actual capital. So being an early fan of something, right, it's something that people brag about a lot. But no one really has to brag that they were early to Bitcoin, right? They have the Bitcoin to show it. And so if you apply those principles on a positive way to being like fans of something to a negative way, for example, harassing people, the fact that you can turn activities, both positive and negative, into quantifiable things that other people can design around based on how they want to interact with you is extremely powerful in its upside and in the way it can protect people from, you know, those downsides. I want to play on that a little bit, Ronan, because one of the things that I think is fascinating about this is talking about this, you know, this ever growing history and this immutable history that somebody's building up. But we haven't yet talked about what it would mean to burn an identity because you may be traversing through the metaverse and doing all of these these things, but at some point in time, maybe um, maybe you just want to go anonymous for some other action or activity. You would have. And an you know what? Just... If you can lose what you built up on the good side, then like so be it. You know. Hey guys, oh, I, yeah. I've sort of lost the thread because my auctions are ending, but I it, this sounds relevant, so I'm just going to jump in and tell you that I I just um, I'm signing a job that's fully anonymous. Um, operating as Shlomes, not as my real life identity. And we've put identity documents in escrow and I'm contracting under an LLC that only has my Ethereum address on it. But that also means that like, we have no idea who you were beforehand and it's kind of irrelevant. And I, I feel like, yeah, you can gain the opportunity to sort of start over. That's exactly. so, so awesome that you had that experience. <laughs> and, and I will say we had a similar, or we kind of like, there was a similar thing that, that happened with XMTP where we, we got a cold DM from Bord Elon and he was very intrigued by, you know, kinds of things that we we're going to be trying to do because the one thing that is challenging for, for the Bord Elon identity is that it is rooted entirely in Twitter and however many millions of followers he's got, he can't easily go over into a new platform, say like Discord and take his reputation with him because once he's over there, he's a student. Um, pseudonymous character. There's no way for him to verify that identity going back into Twitter. And and I would suppose, you know, for you, Shlomo, there's probably like some some kind of similar situation. But as we talked to him, you know, this idea of 
these on-chain identities, these ability to send messages to these on-chain identities, having that carry with you, you know, at this point, I still don't know his identities investing in the company. And I love this. I'm I'm so excited about this because I I truly believe that like this future where just as as you're doing with your art, that you can be known entirely for the works that you put out into the world and then ghost on the rest of it. Like, I don't need to know anything about you except for the fact that you put out some really fascinating and interesting work. And I don't need to know anything about Borley Elon except for the tweets that he puts out in the world. And that's really cool. <laughs> now you don't even know, like you don't even know your investor, but maybe that's a good thing in some cases. I'm actually a team of 12 people who <laughs> hire an actor to play the part of Renan in media. That's amazing. <laughs> I just wanted to update everyone that um, my auction currently, um, a couple pieces are still going, but we've hit a quarter of a million dollars tonight. Utterly insane and utterly beautiful as well. Thank you. But I'll, just to get back to this, though, I do have some concern because, like, we've seen this with, you know, people who do things that are, you know, truly onerous, like that they maybe shouldn't be able to escape from. They kind of, like, drop out of the internet sphere for a few years and then they kind of, like, reemerge and just, like, hope everything's fine again. And, like, do you think that there's any concern with this concept of being able to burn or just sort of, like, sidestep your existing identity and build up a whole new identity that, like, bad actions don't follow people and that we, like, lose accountability? Well, let's let's take it a couple of different ways. There's tons of different ways to, to think about this in particular. And, you know, I won't get into the sort of politics of it all. And I, I do think that there, when you burn an identity, you have to start from scratch again. Uh, and I think there's there's a lot to that. You've got a lot to to build back up. And perhaps there are members of society for whom, you know, kind of rebuilding is, is <laughs> the, the actions that they took uh, that they would otherwise want to burn were so egregious that we wouldn't want them back in <laughs> uh, in some fashion. You know, there, there's there's probably going to be people like that but the other side of that is, you know, you think about um, people who have been, say, uh, you know, unfairly incarcerated or, or perhaps um, had been wrongfully convicted and they have to spend, you know, the rest of their lives kind of rebuilding from this identity that was ascribed to them that, ha- you know, didn't actually, um, none of these things actually happened. And so, you know, if you kind of think about the the opportunities that might exist in this sort of world, it's that they could could burn that identity and move on. Now you can you can find any number of ways that this is this goes full on black mirror and there's a lot of bad that can come from it too. But I think that that by and large, like you have to take uh, and understand that there are gonna be some bad with the immense amount of good that could come from it. The idea that I was just some random kid in a thousand person cornfield town in the middle of Illinois. And my only escape to the outside world was the internet. For me, the reason this stuff matters to me so much is because, you know, in, in 2005, when I was, whenever I was like 21 years old, um, you know, my connection to the outside world was the internet. I was in a tiny little cornfield town in the middle of nowhere. And I started a podcast and it gained a few thousand listeners. And through that, I met, uh, you know, some folks, you know, Julian Smith and some others that, that have been in around the internet that people would know by now. And we sort of came up on the internet together and I learned about entrepreneur, about technology and had it not been for this like online identity, I would have never, I would not be here today. Um, and I think that for, for me, uh, you know, a kid and, a you know, lower middle income family with like nothing, but my dad is a coal miner and my grandpa's a farmer and blue collar everywhere. Like, the internet was my escape. Um, it was my ticket out. And I think that the more that we can provide opportunities to people, the more that we can build platforms where who you are, your identity, your pedigree, your social stature, any of that stuff, the more we can strip that away from being why people care about you, um, the better. Let's focus on the actions and inputs and things that you provide in the world. And, you know, let's let's communicate let's let's interact on those basis first if the price josh to to like double down on what matt was saying if like the price we pay is that like osama bin laden who's still alive has a thriving second career as an animated gif artist um and the upside is that 
everyone has a route around discrimination, then like, I feel like that's a fair trade. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm certainly biased, but like this, this entire thing completely set my life in a, in another, you know, way more positive course. Like this is life changing for me. So it's hard. It obviously like sort of depends on your personal philosophical framework, but um, I guess if you put yourself in my shoes, you can probably just see the, the rose colored version. All right, Cooper, I want to bring you in. Uh, I would love to hear your thoughts on like what, what questions do you have about the future? Because I feel like you're, you're, in, you're in so deep and have an incredible breadth of understanding of the space. You know, what is it that uh, intrigues you about how communication and identity evolve here? I think it's just the ease of use. You know, today, working across 15 to 20 different crypto projects, the way that I stay up to date with what's happening is by going into Discord servers. It's by following key leaders on Twitter. I think all of the on-chain actions that are really important about those projects have nothing to do with the communication channels that are being used today. So when I think about getting messages directly to a MetaMask wallet, or I think about staying really crypto native, you know, I don't want to have to have um, Web2 Rails as a crutch forever. You know, thankfully, Discord's becoming much more aware of how crypto native a lot of their servers are. You know, Axie Infinity is now the largest Discord server in the world. It happens to be a deeply crypto native community. And so I think what I'm paying attention to is ways in which a lot of these communication platforms start integrating crypto. And then more importantly, how our communication channels get integrated natively into the wallets and application we're using every day. So you don't have to leave your Web3 identity in order to stay up with all the products that you're keeping based on. The one thing that I fear from this like decentralization, like having all these separate servers is like, yes, that's an interesting way of organizing it. But I also just feel like it's so messy. Like the UX has so much room to improve. Like I'm constantly losing messages and just getting overwhelmed. And it kind of feels like Discord is my new spam inbox where it's like very little of it is what I really want to read. Uh, and it's so hard to keep up with everything. And so that like that worries me that as we move into, you know, more and more of these metaverses, more of our digital spaces, like when we're in our physical space, you know, we have limited proximity. Like people can only, only so many people can surround us at a given time. Only so many people can like shout something at us at a given time. But online, it's like everything can all happen at once, uh, and it feels like everything can kind of be moving faster than we even have the ability to to track. And uh, that worries me the, of like creating overload, which ends up leading to burnout. Well, Josh, like I love that. Let me just like take right on from that and say that all of this shared state the public ledger, the fact that we will have a history of all of your actions and, and, and dApps that you interact with and people that you interact with, the, the idea that we have this you know, amazing amount of data uh, to pull from is that when you're looking at your inbox, you'll be able to say, only show me people that I have interacted with more than five times. Only show me dApps that I've used for the last three months. Only show me, you know, interactions from, you know, people whom I share at least one NFT project with. The fact that we can pull, you know, that your software client would be able to pull from this shared state, know a lot about your activity and be able to define it based on everything that's already in the public is pretty potentially valuable. It can already do that filtering for you just based on your actions. Yeah, and I'd add in there um, really quickly, you know, there's very different stakeholders in all these communities. I think right now what we see is that all stakeholders are treated relatively the same. So if I hold one token, the communication channels I receive are often the same as if I hold a million tokens. If I hold a common NFT, it's often the same as if I hold a rare NFT. I think what we're going to see more and more is that our involvement in these crypto communities are going to be segmented out by the contributions that we have. So if I'm a designer for a project or I'm a staking provider or I'm a node operator, you know, there are very fundamentally different groups of communication that don't make sense to send to everyone. So as you start to segment out stakeholder groups and using protocols you know, like XM2B, I think it's going to be a lot easier to get in touch with the right people and know that when I'm receiving a message from an on-chain messaging protocol, it's one that I really need to pay attention to, which is contrary to today. You know, Discord typically has an announcement channel, which has 50 messages with 200 emotes, and it's great to kind of keep everyone on the same page. But if you want people to be cross-coordinated and staying up to date with one another, you know, there need to be better communication channels in order to help keep everyone aligned without overwhelming them. Okay, so I have a big question that I want to ask about the concept of exclusion in this era. I feel like a lot of people who didn't get in early, who didn't get in when the price of some of these like profile pick NFTs was low, or they didn't, you know, get buy into crypto early, so they ended up amassing this huge like, uh, you know, coin base, you might even say. Uh, it just seems like uh, they can feel really excluded because I know at times I was like, man, like I, I don't have a half million bucks to buy a crypto punk. 
I bought 2% of one on fractional.art, but it just felt like there was not the, uh, you know, the, the, I already felt late and excluded, even though I feel like we're anybody even talking or listening or thinking about any of this is probably incredibly early in the grand scheme of things. But, you know, is there concern that, you know, people will feel like very excluded and that there's this, this kind of in-group uh, like creating its, uh, you know, it, it's like locking arms and kind of locking people out if you're not part of these early things, or you just didn't have either access to tons of U.S. dollars or you know fiat currency or tons of crypto, or we're really early in some of these communities that you can kind of feel locked out. I feel like that would be a shame if we discourage people who have incredible value to add to the community uh, just because they weren't part of this early. And I like that uh, Matt with with XMTP, you've like explicitly stated in your careers and hiring information that like, you don't need to know about crypto. We will teach you about that. We want you to be part of this if you have value to add. But I think a lot of people are looking out there and they're saying like, I feel like, did I already miss the boat? Or like, am I ever going to be able to be part of this in-group? Uh, or am I always going to feel like I'm sort of on the outside? Can I jump in right here? Because I feel like this is important and I have this conversation a lot with people. Um, I think there are two real simple answers. And one is kind of to reiterate what you said, we're like at the real start of this. Like we still have to use the word NFT to describe things that are tokens. That's like when we had to call photos that weren't filmed digital photos. Like that's the era that we're at is that early. All right. Like we're still saying NFT. We don't even have the word yet for stuff that's off chain that we use. Okay. That's number one. Number two, digital canvases are free, man. And like, Shomo can sell a pixel and spin that into becoming doing what he's doing right now. You know, if Yen can cook, you can too, right? If you can just make, like, I hate to say it, but like making art is free. Like you can just make art and you can mint it somewhere that you can mint it for free and get started. (laughs) I have zero artistic talent for the record. Just weird thoughts. That's all I got. Uh, we're, we're also still so early, though, in how these NFT collections are structured, right? Like, so, yes, maybe everyone's, like, doing 10,000 drops right now, maybe at 0.08 ETH or, you know, 0.02, 0.04, whatever it is. But, like, there's a lot of different models that we can play with. So I think we're still in the very, very early days of figuring out what architectures work, testing out new models. Like, it'll, it'll change to become more accessible, I think, over time, especially as we try to encourage new people to come in. Because, like, that's how this ecosystem ultimately wins. We don't win if it's only, you know, 5,300 board ape, unique board ape wallet uh, holders, right? We need, we need more than that. And so I think you'll start to see more brands, more projects start to experiment with different models that'll bring more people in. Yeah, and I want to call out like one particular project that's taking the whole thing by storm, which is which is loot, which Dom Hoffman, the Vine founder, you know, produced this this <laughs> uh, really crazy uh, spark of an idea in the space where you know it's like a like a role playing game loot bag. You've got your armor, you've got your belt, you've got your weapon, whatever, but you just get a picture of the names of like a set of items and. He launched it and it was free. Um, it's free to, to get as long as you knew how to mint it, which, yeah, it takes some technical expertise to get it. Um, I missed the first minting opportunity. So I came in and I bought for, you know, some small amount. Well, now it's like crazy. Like they're extremely expensive now. And there's already people feeling like they might be left out. Well, then somebody comes along and produces something called synthetic loot, which uh, every wallet has. Because all it is is you just fire up this uh, uh, this this contract and you just plug in your 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 wallet and there you go you've already got one um, and you don't have to go and do this expensive thing of buying one unique and you can still participate in this ecosystem with this thing that's just right there simply by virtue of having a wallet so we're going to see new models things that are more inclusive things that are you know, able to be done in a way that brings new people in. We'll use Axie Infinity as an example where, you know, you can borrow accounts uh, with Axie. So I can set up my characters and and at some point in time, if somebody wants to come and play, they can they can take over my characters and, and go play. We're so it's and with fractional, you mentioned Josh, like the idea that you bought a fraction of these things. There's gonna be any number of ways uh, to to let people feel more included um, and to genuinely include more people into all these things that are happening. Um, it's this, the, the, the creativity that is, 
coming out around all this stuff is pretty incredible. Jumping in on creative things early on obviously gets people some like outsized rewards. And it's really easy to look at a thing that has multiplied and be like, it's too late for me to get in. The people who did get in were jumping in on creative things that they liked. And you can jump in on cheap creative things that you like. And they may not 100x, but the people who jumped in on those didn't have guarantees. They would 100x. They were jumping in on stuff that seemed cool and creative to them. And if you imitate the same activity, you're increasing the chance of that upside. But if you're treating it like a lottery, then like it's always going to be too late because you're only going to be looking at short bets that already paid off, you know? Uh, Cooper, I want to ask one quick thing, uh, which is, you know, I got uh, into this Friends with Benefits, um, da- uh, you know, uh, uh, Discord that you're a part of where you buy the social token. And as long as you have a certain amount, uh, you're able to get access to the server. And it's really, really cool and uh, met some incredible people uh, such as yourself through that. However, at this point, you know, the, the price of that token has just skyrocketed. It's kind of fascinating. Um, but, you know, how has how has that community uh, adapted to that? Because one of its core principles is uh, to be more inclusive and to have an opportunity to bring more people in. So how does that square with the sort of token gating uh, and the high price of the token as it is today? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, for context here, to join the server, you need to hold a certain amount of tokens. When the project started, that was about $20 worth of tokens. And today, that same amount of tokens is worth about $15,000. And so when you look at the difference in um, the ability to join there, there's a really big barrier to entry. I think in some cases, that could be a benefit. You know, the caliber of people joining is typically very high at that price point. But to the point about this conversation, that's not scalable and it's not very inclusive with a lot of the creative people that we want to get on board. So we've been working on a fellowship program where every season we're going to be onboarding um, a dozen plus creators that go through a scholarship process to help access the community, be able to get slotted in and start earning tokens. And we're now exploring more season pass models where, you know, it's not only about holding tokens to join. If you want to come and hang out and enjoy some of the social benefits of the community, there's going to be NFT membership passes and ways to meet these awesome people without having to put down such a large lump sum investment to get involved. And so what you almost have now is this... Um, Ability to have ownership in the group through holding these fungible tokens paired with a social feature access pass in the form of an NFT. And I think that in tandem with a fellowship program to make sure we're always inviting those who don't have financial means to join. So it's a pretty good precedent for the start of that conversation. And I'm optimistic that over the course of the next three to six months, we'll find some pretty awesome standards to make sure that these communities can grow naturally. That's a beautiful point. But with that, I'm just going to give a few of the top insights from today's talk. And we talked about how like wallet addresses are the new names and that you can build this history of your participation in certain ideas, your support for certain types of art that is truly immutable. And since everything is public, we're going to be able to find who those people are and eventually be able to go out and contact and communicate with them. And they're kind of going to be these clubs that exist, whether you know it or not, being owning a piece of something is always going to turn you into a member of a club. Um, and the idea of buying into this stuff is really collaborative patronage. You know, we're moving from this celebrity or artist uh, model where you're, it's a one-way broadcast communication platform to a two-way dialogue between fans and uh, and creators. And I love the idea that you know these Discord channels, things where owning a token gives you access to a social community, means that you can interact and inf- influence both the future of what that artist does, but through things like DAOs and these new governance programs, you can actually have a true direct vote in what happens next to the things you bought into. Uh, and you'll also be able to monetize your identity and sort of decentralize the creation of art by helping by working with other people. Um, and you know, the same way that we used to sort of represent ourselves with possessions like our record collections or our DVD collections or you know our, our photo albums, you know, we're now actually able to curate what we believe in, you know, into a, a, our wallet. And from there, we actually become the distributors. We can sell fractional pieces of it. We can sell access to, to check this stuff out and, and, and experience it yourself. Uh, and I think curation is truly becoming the, the model of the future of identity, not just ownership, but saying what you believe in, not just always what you own. Um, but the ability to turn that like affinity into your profession, to be able to earn things from what you enjoy doing, whether that's you know playing a video game or just creating a digital resume of what you've done over time, I think creates 
an incredible opportunity for people to rebuild their identity and maybe build one that they think is more interesting than their original one, like Shomo here said. Um, and that being part of this sort of, of an iconic experience, uh, you know, a big moment in time, a zeitgeisty moment, people are going to always want a memento of that. And I think that that's how we can think of, think of NFTs, not just as pieces of art, but as, you know, emblems of a moment in time. And they that in that sense, it is still an experiential culture. It's still about that experience. We just have a mementos the same way we'd have ticket stubs. Um, but we always talked about how communication is tied to identity. As identity moves, communication follows. And so when identity went from, you know, being offline to online, we moved from your physical address to your uh, email address. And then as social networks happened, it became, you know, your messaging through Facebook or Twitter. And now as you know, more of our, our identities are being wrapped up in these wallets, communication needs to follow. And it's great to see XMTP uh, building that concept um, because messaging has been centralized for too long. And a lot of our messaging protocols you know, involve something that's both an address and a medium. That means that once you give out your phone number, once you give out your email, somebody has it forever and you literally can't stop them from getting to you if they switch senders. And I think that that's a poor way to structure the future of our communication because communication is attention. That's how we structure our, a lot of our attention is who reaches out to us and who what we choose to view. And so it's so important for us to be able to protect that uh, and protect our attention by protecting that, um, that communication layer. Uh, but by creating this common protocol that can be used across different spaces, we can create a chat layer for the metaverse uh, and your identity can travel with you because, you know, who we talk to is a lot of what we who we really are. Um, and, you know, we're hopefully going to have a new economic model where instead of it saying, oh, it costs 50 cents to send you a real letter, a personal letter, but it's bulk mail costs even less that we can flip that on its head and create economic disincentives uh, for sending bad messages while keeping, you know, honest messages that actually get open always free and accessible. Um, and, you know, we're seeing that anything that came with bragging rights or social capital is now has a way to actually earn you real capital. Um, but that also means that we're going to have to deal with burning identity and the good and bad that comes from that. It means that, you know, if you didn't like who you formerly were, you were being discriminated against, you can build a new identity. But it also could mean that bad actors can kind of escape accountability for what they've done in the past. Um, and I think there's going to be some, uh, some bad, but probably a lot of immense good there. Uh, and if you think that you are late, you are not late. So don't worry quite about that. I'll give a last word to that in a second, but maybe just go a quick round the room, make 20 seconds of what you want to see in the future happen. Uh, we'll start with you, um, MG. Yeah, I just want to see people have fun. I have had more fun in the last like six months with this work um, just because of how creative people have been, how helpful people have been, all the new ideas, all the new primitives that we have. I want to see people have fun. So like, <laughs> you know, Here's a pitch for us. Like we're having a blast building this um, this new future in communication, and we'd love to have people join us on that mission and join us in the fun that we're having. And so, just hit on over to our website xmtp.com or hit me up on Twitter, just at mg. Um, yeah, let's have some fun together. Cooper, what do you think? Yeah, I think that um, we're in an unprecedented moment in history right now. I think for anyone that's listening to this conversation, I would recommend joining a crypto native community. I think you're going to learn so much just by doing it, both from the on-chain activations that you take and by the social communications that you engage with. So if you're looking for a place to get started, there's a ton of amazing DAOs in my bio. Um, I recently put out a post called the DAO Landscape, which has a bunch of amazing internet communities. I would say if you're looking for somewhere to get started, I'm happy to help. And I just want to say uh, thank you for having me on today. This was a fantastic conversation. Thanks a ton. Uh, Mario, why don't you tell us what you think uh, or you want to see in the future? So short term, I want to see lower gas fees uh, or like new models around drops. So like whitelisting, community premium, all that stuff. Long term, I'm like really excited about the intersection of DeFi and NFT. So things like fractionalization, renting your NFTs, offering NFT subscriptions. Like there's so many interesting things that we can build. I'm really excited to see what people come up with. I really like that subscription idea. Shlomo, what about you? Last word. Yeah, the, the main thing I want to see, Josh, is just uh, people making weird art and getting paid more for it. <laughs> I love that. And like we said, you know, if you feel like you are late, you are still early. If you're even thinking about being late, you are still early. And yes, there may be high barriers to entry to things like CryptoPunks or the Friends with Benefits Discord, but increasingly we're seeing people rethink that, you know, creating fellowships, creating scholarships, ways for people to get involved in these communities. But the most important thing is that you can always make something yourself. Like it is never too late to, to be an artist. And I think with so many of the laws of physics redefined, 
mind, there's so much room for exploration and so many new ways to have fun with it. So go make something, go join a community and learn uh, and just go have fun because it's a, it's a whole new world out there and it shouldn't be daunting. And just because you're not the first doesn't mean you're not early. Thank you so much for joining us for Press Club. I'm Josh Constein from SignalFire. If you're building something exciting in the future of the metaverse and the cryptocurrency universe uh, in social or in other things like e-commerce, telehealth or SaaS, we'd love to hear about it. We're a billion dollar venture fund. We specialize in helping with recruiting. I know a lot of those crypto projects out there in the world need help with recruiting because they're growing so fast. We built this technology called Beacon. It crunches a half trillion data points, ranks hundreds of millions of people in the tech ecosystem on higher ability and skill level so we can find you whoever you need to fill those open positions. So if recruiting is a big need, we'd love to hear about your project seed to series B. Uh, we're happy to, uh, to hear more. But otherwise, it has been a total pleasure. Thank you to MG Matt Galligan from uh, from XMTP, the new chat protocol for the crypto universe. Cooper, an incredible strategist with uh, Audius and member of some of the best DAOs in the world. Uh, Maria from Sound Ventures, very forward-thinking uh, investor. Ronan V, uh, I, he's the one who truly taught me about this universe, so definitely go follow up with him. And Shlomo, uh, you know, the, the, the number one toilet influencer in the world. Congratulations on selling a quarter million dollars worth of fractions and fragments of this art piece that you've made. Uh, it's tr quite an inspiration and I think reminds us all that there's a lot of fun, there's a lot of silliness, uh, and there's a lot of new ground to break literally in this space. So thank you from me, Josh Constein from Signal Fire. Love you guys. We'll check you out next time on Press Club. Farewell.